From Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Hello again, I'm your host Chris Pace. Cyber Humanity is the podcast taking cybersecurity personally, trying to get inside the heads of hackers as well as putting our feet in the shoes of defenders. These podcasts essentially come in two flavours, either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks. And we have a theme this episode, which is imperfect people, vulnerable applications. We uh, at Immersive Labs have recently done a study in conjunction with Osterman Research, which explored the human elements that influence cyber risk inside the software development lifecycle. We found actually in this research that 81% of developers have knowingly released vulnerable applications which we thought was kind of interesting. There's a load of other interesting facts that came out of that survey, which we're going to talk about today. Um, I'm delighted to have two guests who are, I'm going to say, experts in this particular area um, because they're they're involved in, in something directly related to it. Um, and that is Andrew Vanderstock uh, with OWASP and also Brian Glass with OWASP. Um, I'm not going to do that thing where I give awkward, stilted introductions uh, to you guys. Instead, I'm going to hand over to you and ask you to introduce yourselves um, and what OWASP is and what's it all about. So, Brian, over to you. All right. So, my name is Brian Glass. I am currently an assistant professor of computer science at a small university. I spent 20 years working in the industry for a number of different companies like FedEx and Microsoft and a number of consulting companies. And I am the co-lead of the OWASP Top 10 and also OWASP SAM, which is the Software Assurance Maturity Model. So I uh, keep myself busy just a little bit. And Andrew, what about you? Tell us about your background and what's the work that you do with OWASP? G'day. Uh, yeah. My name's Andrew Vanistock. I'm the executive director at OWASP. Um, I was appointed to that position uh, late June last year, and it's sort of like the dream job for me because I've been involved in OWASP for about 20 years. Uh, I won't say that I was there at the beginning because I wasn't. Um, my uh, 20th anniversary is actually in November, about three months after the founding of OWASP. So uh, it's the 20th anniversary this year of OWASP. So I'm the co-lead of the OWASP Top 10 um, since well, I did the 20, 2007 version, and then I've, again, from 2017 on, uh, with Brian, Neil, and Torsten. And I'm also the co-lead of the Application Security Verification Standard. So from my point of view, uh, my passions are making sure that we get rid of bug classes and not just whack-a-mole. And talk to us about, or give us a brief introduction, uh, one of you, to, to OWASP and why OWASP exists and what's its mission? What's the purpose of the organisation? Well, I'll, I'll jump in this one. Um, Mark Curfee started it with a few others um, as a more or less uh, a way to give developers the information they needed to create secure software because you've got to remember back in 2000, 2001, every application had SQL injection, every application had cross-site scripting. For what it was worth, even though we didn't know about it at the time, every application had cross-site request forgery. So some of these things are becoming less and less prevalent now because of the work we've been doing. So our mission is to in the past to create awareness of um, uh, security vulnerabilities to allow people to test for them and remediate them. Uh, so we have builders, breakers and defenders, um, which is the rough sort of breakdown of our community anyway. But fundamentally, my I'm a builder. I, I think if you've discovered a flaw in code, it's already too late and all applications have bugs. Uh, even Hello World can occasionally have bugs. So we basically have to assume there's going to be security vulnerabilities in code. Uh, so how do we reduce that risk? And that's OWASP's mission is to make it as easy as possible for developers to have as low risk as possible. And Brian, the top 10 is a part of this. I mean, I think it, it, people who are familiar with application security, and I certainly don't pretend to be an expert, I, I expect to learn a lot in the recording of this episode. Um, but what's the purpose of the, the, the top 10? So the top 10, the first version was out in 2003. Um, and then we've had them, then there was a 2004, and then every three to four years since then. Um, but the top 10 was originally built to be an awareness document. Because AppSec, I mean, just secure coding, secure development can be super overwhelming. So we somebody started with like, hey, if I tell you 10 things to focus on, it at least gives you a starting point. Um, 
But it also, over time, the top 10 has evolved to where, regardless of how much we say it's an awareness document, it is a pseudo baseline, a pseudo benchmark, and a pseudo standard. Um, which also kind of leads to the point that we haven't created decent benchmarks, standards, and such if the top 10 is still used as such. Um, but yeah, I mean, we go through and the top 10's evolved over time. Uh, it's probably one of the most well-known flagship OWASP projects. Um, if anybody's heard of OWASP, a lot of times it's because of the top 10. Um, vendors kind of use it as a measuring stick to whether or not they can cover the top 10. If you can't do that at least, then you know, you've got work to do kind of thing. Um, and as the top 10s evolved, uh, starting 2017, we we're more, much more data centric and 2021 is a lot more data centric. We're trying to make sure that it is not simply us sticking a wet finger in the wind and saying, we think these are the important things in our little bubble, but it's actually based off of data collected globally. Fantastic. I should also take this opportunity to introduce Sean Wright. He's a regular, a bit of a regular, been on a few times, um, uh, Immersive Labs subject matter expert for application security. So I expect you to have insightful, intelligent things to say, Sean. Are my expectations too high? Or No, I actually have something <laughs> to mention about our top 10, which is like a light bulb moment for me. And I think many people are just as guilty of this when they think, oh, it's top 10, it's the top 10 vulnerabilities in terms of like the raw vulnerabilities and please correct me if i'm wrong brian and and andrew but it's more the vulnerability types like injection not just sql injection or no sql injection for me that was like a light bulb moment because i always like oh it's just too broad it, it doesn't cover enough but we're approaching it from the wrong angle it's it's the types of vulnerabilities that we need to be looking at. So that's absolutely true. If you look at the OS Top 10 2017, it, we could have called it the OS Top 10 43. So um, there's 43 CWEs in it. Um, the reality is, is that injections all have the same pattern. And if you can actually deal with the pattern and become aware of the pattern, you can avoid a lot of different types of injections. And so that's why we bundle them together. And I think Brian can probably talk to that a lot better than I can. So for better or worse, we focus on CWEs, Common Weakness Enumeration. Uh, it's not perfect. It's It could be better. Hopefully will be better um, by using it, but I, we can't create another standard. We have so many, like, we'll just create, we don't like this one, let's create another one. Um, much rather do the work in trying to improve that, but there are close to a thousand CWEs. I'm not just going to pick 10 of them. And the thing is, is we generally, AppSec is really messy and we don't agree on it. Like there are two or three of them for cross-site scripting. There are somewhere in the neighborhood of 50, 40 or 50 of them related to injection. And it just depends. So we do, we absolutely, the top 10, we have to call it risk categories because they're not all exactly vulnerabilities. They're not all... Um, individual CWEs, so we try to group them because, again, it's awareness, and we're trying to help people understand, hey, there's commonality between a SQL injection and no SQL injection, cross-site scripting, um, OS command injection. All of There are similarities between all of them, and if you understand what happens and what to do, then you are much better equipped to be able to handle that. And in terms of the audience for something like the top 10, I'm assuming it's designed to straddle those who, you know, actually build code and are developing applications um, across those who are responsible for security. And in a way, I suppose the idea of it is to act as a bit of a bridge between those, you know, those two different uh, approaches. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, there's actually four or five different audiences for the OS Top 10, which makes it a little bit uh, diffuse for some. Mm. Um, if you look at the actual construction of an our Top 10 um, thing, you can see that we talk about the risk, which is the risk managers and AppSec leaders. And then you've got what is the actual problem, so developers can identify how to actually find it in the code. And then what do you need to do about it, again, for developers and um people who are constructing AppSec programs, but also references so that we can actually cross-correlate, uh, which is very good for people who have to do multiple levels of compliance, so for mm. the GRC folks. It is a bit too diffuse, but it is designed first and foremost as an awareness, as a jumping off place to go find out the actual information you need. 
most people are probably unfamiliar with one or more things inside the top 10. If we can point them at a cheat sheet that actually helps them do password storage correctly, mm. fantastic. Okay, so having understood uh, some of that background, let's dive into uh, this this report and some of the things that it seems to have highlighted in terms of the the world of securing uh, securing applications. The first uh, key point is this idea of developers and and managers. It seems in some context, um, releasing you know vulner- knowingly releasing vulnerable applications, and this not just happening at you know at a, you know perhaps medium size companies or you know development houses or whatever but actually in larger organizations senior people choosing to push applications that they know to be insecure that seems crazy to us in our game you know we're in security how could that possibly happen how is that security element either missing or just it not seen as important enough or is it overridden by other things like what's the what's the most likely reason for that for something like that to happen Large application fleets, un- incomplete asset control is essentially the best way of putting it. Uh, I did work for an organization, a very well-known fintech, that had 1,400 applications. Wow. Uh, all of them were essential to run the economy. They weren't going to turn them off just because one of them had a vulnerability from 2005. Mm. That's as simple as that. So they, they do risk management to figure out what needs to be resolved now and what could wait. Um, a lot of it comes down to exposure, like is it available on the internet and other likelihood factors, exploitability and other things like that. But you always get bitten by something that is theoretical, like use after freeze until people work out how to do use after freeze. And then all of a sudden it's on for young and old. That's what happened in 2017 with the, um, the vulnerable components. So honestly, there are thousands of apps in the average large organization they have to pick and choose what they're going to work on. They often choose features over security. They just do. And where where that is happening? What is the so? And, and you you know you've talked about the balance of risk, which is completely understandable in in the kind of scale that you're the kind of scale that you're talking about there. Um, but w- what what are some of the worst things that can happen in the context of of insecure you know of insecure applications? What's the kind of in a way? I guess the question I'm asking is, what's the worst case scenario for an application that's poorly developed? What's the absolute worst kind of vulnerability that there can be? Mm, actually, that's the wrong question. What's the what's the exploitation of the worst kind of vulnerability that there can be? Well, I think you can see it in the news. If it makes news and creates um, paradigm shift in the way that people develop stuff, like for example, after the Saudi Aramco stuff, they you know, soft squishy center network became verboten at most large organizations and segmentation and zero trust became the thing. Um, That still needs to happen. Personally, if people are starting to go after things that actually stop people from doing their actual lives, like the pipeline attack recently, um, that is a serious problem. But if you were asking me this question in 2000, I'd say SQL injection. You've asked me this year, it's going to be vulnerable components. And, you know, to my mind, it's it's going to continually change as we work through the bug classes, basically. I mean, from my perspective, if, if you don't deploy, you have a 100% chance of failure. If you do deploy with vulnerabilities, <laughs> you have a small percent chance of failure. The problem that we run into a lot of times is security either doesn't know or is not that great about trying to explain the actual risk. So a lot of the risk decisions made are actually made with incomplete information. But most risk decisions, honestly, if you think about it, really do have to be made with incomplete information. And so somebody has to make the call, do I deploy a vulnerable app? What's the likelihood or maximum impact that somebody might be able to do something to it? Whereas if I don't deploy, I have a 100% chance of failure because it's not there. Yeah, and you got to, do, and, and in some ways, you have to think about the amount of creativity that has to be applied to thinking about how to exploit a vulnerability in the first place. And you're kind of, if we work backwards from what you've just said, you're expecting the developers to be able to do that. You're expecting them to be able to know, well, I have this vulnerability, so therefore I must understand how it can be exploited, which I guess is not necessarily true. Another thing I want to add is the impact. Take cross-site scripting, for example. How do we show it? Script alert, script. So a developer's going to go. Oh, the worst is going to happen is an annoying pop-up box mm. and not realize like the user's browser could be essentially compromised. And we don't show that. We don't show the impact enough. So developers, 
rightly or wrongly assume the wrong thing so is there an argument there for and i was and i was obviously going salacious by pushing andrew for like give me the worst case scenario because like that's what's exciting like threaty threaty threat because that's kind of exciting but are we are we it felt like you were t- heading towards sean like maybe we should be explaining the worst case scenario to developers you know to perhaps it is a time for, for a little bit of a you know perhaps we should use a bit of fear you know is that is that worthwhile I said, don't explain, show them. Show them what a real attack would look yeah. like. Show them the implications. So like cross-site scripting, show them how a user can be redirected to a malicious page. Show them how a BFOC can be um, injected and then exploited. That's showing the yeah. impact. Yeah, the better quality POCs that we could use, the easier it is to demonstrate the thing. In 2007, a financial firm that I was doing work for were trying to put up their annual meeting on video on their website. So Rick rolled the security manager. That got them to change that within half an hour. <laughs> so unvalidated forwards were definitely a thing. And, you know, I, I rather enjoyed Rick rolling the security manager because it probably hadn't happened in a report before. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we're, we're, we're sort of saying, we're, we, we are kind of saying that the that making some of these, the more tangible we can make some of these vulnerabilities, perhaps the more impact that that would have on the attitude towards um, towards how some of these um, apps are developed, I guess. There is also some difference highlighted in the report between uh, a manager of a dev team, DevOps m- manager, the difference between them um, and a developer themselves. And there were actually more development managers uh, who were more frequently releasing insecure code. Do you think that goes back to the same thing? It's that, but if I don't do that, I'm failing at my, I'm failing at my job. So therefore I'm more prepared to absorb more risk. And doesn't that, doesn't that open up more potential problems? So I think there's an issue where development managers' KPIs are about delivering on time and within budget mm. than it is about delivering secure code because unless you can demonstrate a break, they aren't going to get penalised. To my mind, developers not knowing as much as dev leads is actually a normal thing. Mm. Um, a game I play called Elite Dangerous, there is a big problem with the graphics engine at the moment. It doesn't do culling which means it's very, 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 very slow. And people are complaining that maybe juniors are working on the code. No, juniors don't know certain things because they haven't been shown by senior folks. I think we need to get to a place where there are KPIs on the senior folks and then they demonstrate good behaviours to the juniors. There's always going to be a skill gap. And I, I don't think we should actually build our entire security program around the, the idea of blaming developers. It's, a, it's got to be something where everyone works together. Okay, moving on to one of the other uh, interesting uh, aspects of the research, and and that was this idea that uh, from the security side, um, those responsible for security had little faith in the software development life cycle um, to be able to uh, essentially for it to be able to operate in a in a secure in a secure way. So confidence in um, the life cycle and app or application security as a whole was was low why do we think that might be because my response to that would be well then you need to be more involved in that process Mm -hmm. to ensure that it's more secured so is is that a is that a soft squidgy people thing or is that a process thing or is it a combination of the two of the two i blame the mythical man month Uh, the mythical man month has a thing called desk checking and it basically puts um security folks as auditors we are not auditors Auditing means something very specific to the accounting profession. Security folks need to be a development person. Yeah. They need to be involved and they need to change the esti- like the actual software development lifecycle. Just calling it um, like a secure development lifecycle doesn't make it so. If you're busy trying to tell developers what to do instead of doing that paved road or providing solutions and sitting down with coders and actually creating co- secure code, you're not a security person. You're this pretend faux secu- like auditor. And desk checks never, ever worked. It produces buggy code. Um, to my mind, this is, a, this is something that the larger organizations like the Netflixes and the Facebooks of this world have sorted out. They actually understand that security people cannot be to the side. Um, if you think of the other team as this other group, this out group, mm. you're always going to look down on them. If you're part of the solution, you're not going to do so. 
and you might have more change. And I think that's where, you know, Facebook and Netflix and others who've done the paved road type of situation, they are actually doing quite well at security. Brian, your thoughts? I mean, it's large. I mean, it's two things, right? So it's cultural, but cultural will deal with the people and it'll deal with the process. So if your culture values having good quality and secure code, then it will allocate the time. And so your executives allocate the time, you'll get the right people in place, and it has to be part of what's normal from start to finish. There can't be like anomalies where you're jumping out of a normal workflow to do something security related. Because I mean, humans, we're, we're not lazy, we're efficient. So we follow similar to electricity, we follow a path of least resistance. If the path of least resistance to is to create secure code, that's what we'll follow. If there's great level of resistance to creating secure code, we're not going that direction. We just won't. There'll be a very small number of people who feel really passionate about it that will spend an extra two hours a night of their own time until they get burned out trying to solve this problem. But to solve these larger like categories of vulnerabilities that we see, it really comes down to we have to give developers a more default secure way of doing it. They have to understand what's going on, but at the end of the day, we can't ask them to allocate 30, 40, 50% of their short-term memory, their consciousness to making sure they don't write vulnerable code. They have to have an underlying understanding so they can see it, they identify it, they understand what's going on. But at the end of the day, they have to have the tooling, they have to have the language support. Um, otherwise, we're not gonna get that secure code. And if we look at when people say, hey, I don't have confidence in my life cycle, whether it be to create secure code or that it's secure itself, that tells me the culture hasn't come around yet at their organization to where it is part, it is, and it kills me as a security guy to say there's more things to developing code than security. There absolutely is. We're mm -hmm. just a small piece of the pie. We can be a very impactful piece, but we're still small. You still have resiliency. You still have... Um, quality, you still have performance, you still have scalability. I mean, you have so many different aspects of it. But at the same time, like why, we kind of do ourselves a disservice a lot of times when security decides to treat ourselves as a unicorn. We're like, we're super special and we need our own separate process and we need our own separate standards and our own separate requirements. And it's just like, we don't want to play. Like we don't want to have to make the investment to live in their world. And that's where I think we have a big gap a lot of times. I just want to add, it also works both ways. Um, I've had the opposite where I want to get involved. Uh, I, I like basically plead and do whatever I can to get involved and you get ignored. And I think that's largely to do with stigma that mm -hmm. we've had associated with security people. Oh, this is going to come in, yeah, they're going to like the no people or whatever. Um, I, I really think both teams should work together because ultimately you're working for the same company you're trying to achieve the same goal um it just you have different ways of getting there well actually you hit on an important point in theory we're trying to hit the same goal but in reality a lot of times the security people are aiming for a different goal than the developers are and that's what that's a lot of the misalignment if we were actually aiming for the same goal then we are far more likely to work together uh, so one of the things that were that that came out of of that particular this this lack of faith in the in the life cycle was a uh, essentially a lack of sufficient time resource um, for security professionals to do exactly what you just described, Brian, which is to kind of insert themselves into that uh, into that process. Now, there's loads of money kicking about for security. It's all we ever hear all the time is more budget available all the time. So why that? resource challenge it feels like you know for the amount of the amount of marketing that application security currently gets that we should be in a place where there's tons of investment being made and loads of commitment from companies to make this stuff work so why is the why is it that potentially that isn't happening humans um try try get um skill gap um that like i've gone through it uh, recently trying to find people with the skills and are passionate about it is, is, is difficult. Um, and we need to get more people in it because this problem is only going to get worse as more and more companies to look towards AppSec. It, it's huge. And there's just not enough people at the moment to fill that gap. Yeah. 
I actually do think there's a fulcrum moment here where if you don't understand the lever, you're just going to be firefighting. You're just going to be looking through the list of bugs and working on them one by one when you could be doing something very impactful, such as trying to get people like, for example, one of the things that we saw with this year's data is cross-site scripting is becoming quite rare. And it's because the bug class has become fixed with the modern frameworks like Vue, React and others. And because if you can make an impact by saying, let's get off this old display framework, go to this new one, it can look a lot better, like new features for the people, but also we solve to a great degree a big security issue. Now, that fulcrum can be applied in a lot of different areas. And I think a well-constructed AppSec program that builds a lot of the, the building blocks by saying, you should be using this toolkit or this library, not this one, and it eliminates all of these classes of bugs that we don't have to go and whack-a-mole, it's a lot better. And we can actually spend time on doing things that are actually more impactful, such as chasing down access control and business logic bugs instead of cross-site scripting. And that's where we need to do. We need to have that fulcrum idea, that the idea of creating a lever that actually has the most amount of impact for the time that we have available. Coming up a, a, a level, if you like, and looking at things from a sort of bit, you know, a bit through a business lens, um, and perhaps in the context of security strategy, you know, I've just said there's loads of budget available. Do, but do we think that security still has this hangover of, you know, we're about, you know, prevention, protection, detection, respect, like our focus is those things. Um, and perhaps like they don't see securely coding applications as a thing that fits neatly into, into that, that framework. Um, and so therefore this, the shift left challenge actually is a thing that's just difficult for organizations to get their, their head around, um, because it's not a thing in security that they've been used to handling. Is that fair? Am I being, am I being mean? No, no, it's fair. I mean, at the end of the day, I think culture, security has a lot of culture. Mm. And if you're brought up in a particular way, uh, like you've done a CISSP or, and you've got this certain body of knowledge and you've only ever heard about uh, the GRC type processes, that's what you'll do. Mm. But if you've actually been to an organization that has a good security program, that's actually, you know, the security folks are embedded, that's what you're going to do. You probably wouldn't go back to GRC. There was an example of a gentleman that I worked with about, I'm going to put my age out there now, um, probably 12 years ago. He had this thing called tangible security. If you couldn't touch it, don't do it. He actually refused to actually pay for a single piece of policy because he couldn't touch it. And he invested instead in doing things that were actually, in his view, change security for the better. Yeah. And you know what? He was partially wrong, but so are the people who only do the policy side. Yeah. So... Look, I've lived through all of the fads in the security industry. Like, oh, you're going to get breached. You're already hacked. Let's just do detection and response. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's that's a fad that's very, very popular. But there's also folks like myself who think we're never going to get on top of this unless we start building secure apps. But is that the entire solution? No. Yeah. We can't just go one direction and the other. You need to have balance. There's enough people in our industry that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> That's a good analogy. And also, I think um, we kind of touched on it already, the idea of creating those hybrid folks that sit across, um, you know, that sit across different functions and bring security to those business areas is becoming a more important thing as business risk, you know, increases, you know, spreads generally, you know, application security is the kind of most obvious and tangible example. But actually risk is spreading to all kinds of other places where security champions are needed in exactly the same way as they're needed. Uh, for securing applications but it does seem to be a human a human challenge um resources definitely an issue here highlighted in the report the struggle to you know the the will to shift left but a struggle to do it um you know based on everything else that was uh, everything else that was going on um, whether that was you know uh, security people looking to address prioritized vulnerabilities even just working together on secure applications this time and resource thing seemed to be a problem but sh um, shift left can you just each each of the three of you could you just give us your own sort of brief definitions of of shift left they don't have to be non-identical but it's just interesting to get an understanding given that i think it's a term that's applied to 
applied in a lot of different ways um, today. So what would your understanding of that be? When I was working at Aspect Security, we came up with a, basically this term um, back in the mid-2000s. And it was a bit heretical at the time that essentially architecture and the secure design was an essential component. And that's where the ASVS came from. So if you look at the genesis of the ASVS in 2008, 2009, it was to shift left. It was to try to get security requirements into software. To my mind, it's to raise the visibility and awareness that if you build code securely from the get-go, you've got less work to do later. And to my mind, getting developers to have that security view requires a different mindset than having separate tooling. You need to be with the tools the developers use. If you're not in their IDE every day, if you're not in their CI, you're invisible to a developer. So shifting left is getting our tooling in a form that developers can understand and take action on immediately, preferably, like say for example, with a like a little problem warning that pops up in the code. Um, that is the best time to fix the problem, not months later. So from mine, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? So shift left is very much a marketing term. And like Andrew said, like I, I worked at Aspect as well just after Andrew did. Um, and shift left, we were too early with shift left that everyone wasn't ready for it. It disappeared for about four years and then came back with a vengeance. Um, so, and then we decided that shift left wasn't cool enough. So now we have shift right as well because we didn't want to ignore the other <laughs> half of this. And so this really stems from like, goes all the way back to waterfall development. So if you look at the waterfall SDLs, they are always portrayed moving left to right as a flat plane. Sometimes they'll, they'll you'll get a little bit of moving down for some people who decide they want steps of a quote unquote waterfall. But so shift left was all was that concept of we need to deal with security before we start laying down code. And then the shift right to me is the oh, yeah, but we need security in the once you do something with the code. So all of the automation, all of the CICD stuff to me is part of the now DevOps shift right. The shift left is more conceptual. So right before you lay down a line of code, this is all human conceptual level. Very bit, very little of it is actually framework quantified, machine readable. That's all the human side. That's the artistic part. When you hit start to lay down code, all of a sudden that can all be automated. That's all machine readable. And that side. So shift left is super popular right now because we're like, hey, more than developers need to know about security. And that's absolutely true. They don't have to have a ton of detail, but they need to be aware. Your business analyst that goes and talks to the customer and writes the use case, they need to be aware of these concepts so that when they write a case that says, hey, the customer needs to be able to do this, they can add just a little bit of language in it. It says, by the way, the customer wants to be able to view their own reports and not have anyone else see them. Because if we actually write it that way in that use case, then all of a sudden somebody has to write security to satisfy the core base use case. Because now I have mm. to say, not only do they have to have access to it, but I now have to prevent anyone who's not authorized from having access to it. We used to think that was implicit, but then we realized that if we weren't explicit with it, people would miss it. For me, it's um, enabling security as soon as possible. It's, as Brown pointed out, it's, it's the human element, getting people involved sooner. Like we, we don't suddenly go build houses without doing any sort of appropriate planning and requirements gathering that, but we seem to do the opposite with um, software development sometimes. But I, I suppose the attitude to the the attitude to those responsible who um, for making sure that a building is built up to code, as you would say, in uh, on the other side of the pond, we would say we would have we have building control, right? But either way, those people are not popular. That's the problem that I feel like that's the whole problem that we that we have. You still can't get to a place where the guy or girl who's going to come and tell you. Um, no, you need to do it in this way to make sure that it's up to standard. They're never going to be a person that you, uh, you know, that you have probably respect for, or that you think is, you know, helping you with your helping you with your job. So I suppose the bigger question is, how do we fix that? I know we've talked about embedding them in the process, but what what about the what about the human parts of building those relationships between those two types of of, of people? 
I mean, the, the funny thing is, is it really comes down to, and I've seen it numerous times from just working at companies and then consulting, is it comes down to communication. So the security people have a certain language, a certain vernacular where they like talk about things a certain way. Developers have a certain way of speaking and thinking. Business analysts have a certain way of thinking, speaking. Project managers, right? So the word, the hardest problem we have is actually bridging those gaps, helping them understand, mm. like, what do we mean when we say this? What does this acronym mean? What is, you know, instead of making assumptions like, oh, they said this, this is what it means to me, or they mean it totally different because there's this weird overlap between your two worlds. People that can bridge those gaps are immensely valuable, and there's not enough of them. But sometimes it just it's cultural, right? So I had the company one of the companies I've worked with that I felt will do a really good job of it is they built a security ninja or security champion program, and culturally it was cool to be able to go through their program, a couple of months of training, um, being loaned out to the AppSec team for six months or a year. To get like in deep embedded understanding, but also realizing that you were going back to your development work and being able to, I mean, they built um, the program up, they had swag, so they had hoodies and they had mugs and they had stickers and being able to earn one of those was cool in that company. And so you wanted to be part of that program that was part of career progression that got you more visibility to upper management. And all of a sudden, the entire culture was like, hey, it is good for us, for our internal career, for our recognition to build secure code. And if you can pull that off, and I don't see it at a lot of companies, but if you can pull that off, that's amazing. Then you will naturally build time in the schedule for security. You'll allocate resources. You'll have advocates at every meeting that say, hey, by the way, this is important. But then do you think that that is a a disconnect from the top of a business not being clear as to the importance of security in the building of those applications isn't that the missing isn't that the missing bit yes and no but i mean at the end of the day they Maybe. get <laughs> i hate being wishy-washy about this but honestly if they're building a new feature that will earn them millions of dollars and versus prioritizing security they basically assume that security will be built in. It's sort of like when you hire someone, you assume that they know how to do photocopying um, and you don't need to actually make that a business requirement. My goal with a lot of this stuff is the CISOs and the CIOs need to be able to say to the development managers, hey, you need to include security requirements and make sure it's a key element of the deliverable. Um, when I was talking with some of the founders of Agile a long time ago, they didn't have security in the manifesto, yet they assumed that security was going to be basically the constraints. They documented how to do constraints, but if you look at almost every development wall in existence, every you know um, use case design, there are no constraints. Therefore, you know I as a user should be able to look at my own profile constraint no one else should be able to look at my profile. Those are the things that are missing because it's just not visible. We need to work on that some more. It's the rush to innovate that is, you know, and it's always been the case in technology. You know, as a whole, I could give you examples in virtualization, examples in the advent of cloud. Security was never security was never included at the outset it's only included when these things start to get exploited which is bizarre if you go back to Sean's example of building the house or building a self-driving car you would never consider not having you know safety implications but we're kind of talking about exactly the same thing and so is it missing is it missing some you know higher organization some dare I say government intervention that says you know there are standards that must be met to protect people's data we take your security seriously how many times have we heard that ah, that's your favorite that's your that favorite one says it all. yeah that's like the on hold music is important to us we're gonna let you say next, <laughs> next time a company says that they should be held accountable okay do you well firstly why are you saying that why didn't why wasn't it an issue or thing before and what are you going to do about it accountability is where i think we're failing a company has a breach 
peers in the media, and then that's the last we hear of it. There's no accountability for them. Yeah, there's minimal pain. I mean, I remember when the first TJ Maxx breach came out, and we're like, oh, the company's done for. No, not even close. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep, if you look at the number of companies that have actually gone out of business for any kind of major size breach, the number is in single digits. Yep. I mean, look at the uh, it just doesn't. So, like, they're doing risk management. Um, large part of the reason why you see innovation minus security is because it's not a competitive advantage. You will lose money. You will lose your place first to market if you spend the time to put security in that first round. The only times that that will come out is when it is actually a legitimate competitive advantage to have a secure variant of something first time out to market. Right now, Apple is being able to do something that's fairly unique and they can actually trumpet security and privacy as a competitive advantage. It's kind of sad to me that we it took this long and only one company's really doing it, um, which is kind of telling on our industry. But, I mean, they're, they're actually able to leverage it as a competitive advantage right now. And until that happens, you just won't see it for the first out-the-door stuff. We will repeat the same thing over and over. We repeated it for IoT. We'll repeat it for whatever is after IoT. Do we not think, though, that the more embedded these things become and the more ubiquitous they become in daily life, there has to be a tipping point at which the wider world, the population, starts to say, ah, oh, actually, you know what, I've realised this is not okay. I am not, I am actually not okay with this. I am not okay with a nefarious third party being able to see what I say to my smart speaker or being able to know what's in my bank account. Or, like, I'm not okay with that. Like, I feel like we almost have to get to that moment before shift left becomes a thing that's reality in many mm. ways. So, I mean, the the tipping point for privacy was really GDPR because it was backed up with teeth. And then Mm. privacy became not only a thing that they had to do for some organizations like uh, Apple, it's a competitive advantage that's something they market. Um, Whether it's true or not, I mean, you know, just look at what they're doing in China. It's like it's possible for them to back down. But the reality is, is that for most of the world, they sell their products on the basis that we keep your stuff private. We don't have access to it. Mm. Um, and for the people who care about that, that's really good. But is Apple the dominant mobile phone player? Probably by market share, they're doing really well, but are they as a as the platform? Probably not. So, you know, I would really love to see privacy bubble up as to being a first-class concern in all software. Just go look at Cambridge Analytica, Facebook. What happened mm-hmm. from that? Everyone still uses Facebook and WhatsApp. Well, I don't. I don't know. I think that it has hurt their mm-hmm. usage, and usage to them obviously is the, you know, is the is the alter, is the everything, you know, for like any platform like that. Because obviously, without usage, you don't have data, and you can't sell that on. And so, I think it it has impacted them a bit. But I suppose if you looked at their corporate value. Yeah, not enough for it to really make a difference to Brian's point about, you know, how many businesses, you know, go under, you know, after something like a privacy scandal or a data breach. Not many. Um, so let's let's take a step back from all of this as we come to as we come to wrap up um, in an in an ideal world. What's the what's the kind of button that, that each of you would press, um, you know, in order to be able to in order to be able to really begin to build uh, security into application development. What do you think is the, I'm not going to, there's no silver bullet. I know that, but where do you think are the most important changes that could be made if we could make them tomorrow without worrying about human stuff or processes or money, if we could do it tomorrow, what would we, um, what would we do? Um, Andrew, you, uh, you first. I would actually invest in getting secure frameworks. So work with the existing frameworks that are very, very popular and get bug classes squished and then basically get some sort of law passed that say you have to use the latest version. So therefore mm. at, at a stroke, millions of apps become a lot more secure. Are they going to be actually secure? No, but they will be a lot more secure just because the frameworks are in my thing, the lever, the, like the fulcrum is the framework. We've got to invest time in getting secure frameworks. Brian. So how do I put myself out of a job? Is that what you're asking? Yes, it's <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's kind of twofold. One, like Andrew mentions, you, we have to give the path of least resistance to be secure defaults. It has to be in the frameworks of what we build. It has to be hard to make insecure. It has to be hard to make vulnerabilities, not by default. Um, and the other is awareness. I mean, understanding the importance because we're, we're rapidly going from, oh, this vul this breach, vulnerability to breach to whatever is an inconvenience. I got a new credit card. I had to deal with identity theft. We're rapidly running into people die. Not, not get, and I'm not a big FUD type person, but we're really rapidly running into the more software controls everything, the more that people will ultimately die from these kinds of issues. We're seeing it in medical. You'll see it in self-driving cars. You'll see it in a lot of other things that just, from the software that runs it. Like, I mean, the Boeing 737 was a software issue where they cheated on you know, whether or not to have multiple checks to, for something. And when a component failed, they didn't have the layers of resiliency and the software took over and ran the plane into a nosedive. Um, mm -hmm. The other big thing I run into that security people have the worst trouble with is we are terrible about explaining risk in a business risk context. Mm -hmm. Like we're trying to enable the business to make informed decisions and we're terrible about framing it in the right way. So I guess there's three. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need three buttons. One, one won't do it. The last point's super interesting. I, I, I might come back to that in a minute. Sean? For me, it's humans. Um, it's, it's the human side. It's the culture side. Getting people vested in, and interested in security, forming their culture. And then getting people to work together. I think that's one of the biggest problems that we face today is the clash between different teams. Getting teams to work together, they'll help drive innovation, help drive ideas. Um, and that's, yeah, share knowledge, share awareness and all of that good stuff. To that point, um, Brian, on, on, you know, security um security challenges to business at risk i think that's really i think that's really interesting and i think that goes back to that point i was making about our uh, you know our history if you think of security as a whole industry born out of technology um that loves tech things and so often explaining a security concept or even explaining why a thing is vulnerable will go to all the technical things about that vulnerability that even make it interesting or exciting for the security professional but actually the whole time and this happens a lot with CISOs the whole time is the CISOs like nodding like, okay I mean this sounds I, so is it bad <laughs> like that's basically the kind of what you're talking about it's like do I do, do we did our business care about this that's what I need that's what I need to know and say so your two points joined together Sean you're right it's about humans but actually it's about uh community it's about softer skills it's about how effective is my communication in the context of what the business uh, of what the business requires i think that is a wider issue than just application security that is a security issue everywhere how effectively are security professionals communicating with wider businesses about whether things really affect them or not is a is also a huge challenge that we have as an industry. Mm. Well, like you mentioned impact before, right? Because the, the security people would tell you it's bad. And the business people are like, well, well how, how is bad? They're like, it's really bad. Like you could be completely compromised. It's bad. <laughs> and they're like, but, but what does that mean? And it's like, well, we could go under. And the business people are like, we know that's not true. Or we're fairly certain that's not true, but we don't know how to quantify what your really bad means. Mm. Like they're looking for things like, hey, what's our annual loss expectancy? Like, are we going to lose 100 grand per event? How many events per year? How, how often is this going to happen? Kind of thing. And security people are like, no, it's bad. I, I, can, I can poke <laughs> holes in this all day long. It's bad. And it's like we just don't, we don't understand like what they're looking for. The business isn't very good at explaining like I need you to mm -hmm. tell me in these numbers. And the security is yeah. not very good about asking. It's like, how do I tell me how to explain this to you in a language that you understand? And it, it, it's fascinating in that respect in terms of the, the relationship between the two. Uh, does anyone have anything they want to add? Now is your chance. Any thoughts you had that you didn't get to talk about? I just want to sort of hark back to like, um, we're about to get involved, hopefully, uh, with the 
response to the US government's uh, executive order. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping that because of the very short time frames, more people will become aware of the OWASP stuff. But we also are very cognizant that some of the things the executive order wants, which is, you know, more or less secure component integrity and um, things like that. We, we don't have a lot of DevOps stuff in OWASP, but we also don't have a lot of architectural stuff. So I'd like to put a call out there. If people are interested in doing secure DevOps and doing secure uh, architecture, because it's been a long time since security architecture had things like SABSA. We need an, a modern SABSA, if you understand my meaning. Enterprise mm. architecture has gone away, and I think that's actually a, a poor outcome for the industry. But I, it's an essential component. I'd love to see more people working on this, that type of thing. Yeah, the, uh, the, the I was reading through that, um, uh, I might say wading through it, uh, the other day, the executive order. And I, I, one thing I noticed is that, and it, this harks back to something that we were talking about previously, that, you know, uh, technological innovation ahead of ahead of security i think it's recommending in like a faster um a faster transition to the cloud isn't it and that Mm. immediately made me think exactly to your point well we know that loads of cloud architectures really badly it's really badly configured and now we're going to rush off and put more um and put more data on it that just there were things in that um executive order that i thought i see the i see where this is coming from but there are like many other elements that are required to work, I guess, to your point, um, you know, on the securing architecture thing that are required to work in order for that executive order to actually be fulfilled, if you like. Well, in some ways, the US agencies are required to use FedRAMP, which is essentially a cloud Mm. um, that's more secure, theoretically. It's hosted completely in America, which hackers don't care what your IP address is, so that's hilarious. Um, But (laughs) fundamentally, um, because of the way that people can work on the virtual network architecture, it has the possibility of actually doing proper segmentation. But if you're just shoveling your data center into a cloud, Mm. you've just transferred the risk from your data center to the cloud. You haven't changed the profile of the app at all. And there we must bring things to a close. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your audio content. And if you want to know more about Immersive Labs, you can find us at immersivelabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Immersive Labs. Thank you all for listening and thank you to my guests for being part of today's podcast. Until next time, bye-bye. (laughs) 